Welcome to this episode of Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Eric Strickland. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, as always, uh, find us on your favorite podcast platform, if that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, something else. Uh, I am aware of an issue with Apple Podcasts, um, so we're trying to work through that. So you are going to be able to get the latest episodes, but for some reason our back catalog is not showing up. So stick with me on that. Um, you can also make sure to find us on Twitter at NTSB on Facebook at NTSBGov, on Instagram NTSBGov, on LinkedIn at NTSB. Um, to the interns still pushing for Snapchat, we're still not going to do that, and that is going to be my running joke through this whole episode, even when or a series, even when Snapchat is not a thing. Um, so, so make sure to get us where you can, and NTSB.gov on the website if you still do old-fashioned websites. Um, and I'm happy, and as always, to be joined by James Anderson, making sure that we sound good. Thank you very much, James. And Stephanie and Leah are in the room as well uh, to make sure that I don't sound stupid, which sometimes happens. <laughs> but this week, I'm very excited to be joined by a rail accident investigator, Joey Ryan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Joey is not a headquarters-based investigator because we have investigators spread out throughout the country. And where are you located currently? I actually work out of my home office in Upland, California. Is that North California or South That's California? California. Okay. <laughs> About 30 miles outside of LA. California yeah. is like three different states. So you're either it in a, you know, a nice climate, a warm climate, or a very hot climate. Yeah, it's it's always nice. It was 80 when I left. So. Oh, geez. Yeah. So nice. Wow. You could have brought some of that with you. I tried. <laughs> well, well, we appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your, your trip to headquarters to, to chat with us. And so, you know, I kind of... As we've been talking to different folks throughout the agency, I just kind of always am curious what got you to the agency. So, you know, you gave me a little bit of your bio, so we'll kind of start on that. But I didn't know that you could sign up for the Navy at 17. So can you explain kind of how that all happened or what was going on? Yeah, uh, you can sign at 17. Your parents have to sign for you. <laughs> they have to sign saying that uh, you're an adult enough to sign for yourself is what your parents oh, okay. sign for, yeah. So you have to be a mature 17-year-old. Yes. And you have to prove that to your parents. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Had you always wanted to you know, do the Navy? Is that something? or? Yeah, my, my grandpa was a uh, World War II Navy veteran, um, and my brother was already in the Navy. So, oh, cool. Yeah, and I didn't want to stay in small-town Missouri, so I had to do something. Yeah. So, yeah. When, uh, so I'm just I'm trying to think back when I was 17, and, and I, I, I – couldn't have tied my shoes like or I had been driving for a while, but that's about as much responsibility as anyone was willing to give me. So, you know, I probably shaped you pretty quickly and got, you know, do I really want to do this? Do not want to do this? Like, did you have any kind of like second guessing yourself after you left? Well, no, I mean, uh, you know, I, I got homesick for a while, but, um, you know, I didn't want to grow up or live the rest of my life. It was it was a in that town. It was a small town population about. 285 people. Oh, wow. And, um, I mean, that you beat me on the small town. There was no jobs. So, um, and I enjoyed welding. And so I signed up for the Navy, became a welder. Oh, cool. And, um, that started my whole career. So, and talking to you at previous activities, I know that you've been a trained guy your whole life. So I was surprised when you said that you started with the Navy like, instead of doing something maybe with trains or something on the land. I, I didn't see the time, but now that you mentioned welding, so that's, that's kind of how things tied together for you? Yeah, it was weird. I, you know, Well, when I was a little bit younger, I actually wanted to be a preacher. Mm. So I went from preacher to being a, wanting to be a welder. <laughs> it was more profitable. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so welding, um, 
joined the Navy. Uh, I actually went to vocational school while I was in high school to learn welding. Oh, cool. Um, joined the Navy as a welder slash firefighter. Um, did four years active duty. And then actually Union Pacific Railroad were, was doing um, uh, job fairs mm-hmm. on military bases. And it just so happened to be at about the same time that I was going to separate. And that's how I started my railroad career. I went to the job fair, got hired on with Union Pacific as a boilermaker welder. That's awesome. And that's how it all started, yeah. That's really, so you just jumped right into it. So so you uh, went to Union Pacific as a Boilermaker welder. Yes. What does that mean? Well, Boilermaker is like the union name. There really is, there's no boilers no more. Oh. So it's the same union, but basically you're just like I a structural it, welder. So. I honestly thought you were going to say it's a step up. So they start you on like the steam engines that work somewhere and then you work your way up because I, I thought boiler went with the steam engine. Yeah, it was actually the name of the union that we were in. But so our name was Boilermaker, which they, from what I recall, they were starting to fade them out oh, yeah? when I left the railroad. Not so many uh, Boilermakers left. But uh, post-railroad, when I went to work with the Federal Railroad Administration, I actually got qualified on steam boilers. So I kind of went back to the original name. <laughs> There's some steam locomotives that still exist on tourist and excursion railroads that oh. have to be certified. So I did get some experience in that field, actually. And so how long were you at Union Pacific? I was there about 11 years. Okay. And so yeah. you started out as a Boilermaker welder. Did mm-hmm. you kind of stay in that that field for that whole time, or did you try different things out at UP? Uh, you know, with Union Pacific, I, I was I did the Boilermaker thing for a few years and then worked my way up to a foreman, a group foreman, mm-hmm. and worked, you know, different spots as a foreman. After that was general foreman, and then after that was manager, where I managed a shop in L.A., actually. It was a locomotive repair facility. Oh, cool. And that's, that was going to be my next question. Like, mm-hmm. did you travel around as this, so, or was there always one spot where you did a lot of the maintenance? Is, like, Union Pacific was based in one spot, and you did everything there, or did you kind of follow the trains around if you know, fix them if they broke down or whatever. Yeah, actually, I was at a fixed location. It was a re- I always worked at repair shops, mm-hmm. so which was always in the same spot. And the locomotives came to us. That makes it yeah. easy. Yeah. Um, and this may be a very naive question. Are there different kinds of locomotives? Like, did you have to learn? I'm assuming when you're welding, you kind of have to know where the, the structural weaknesses are, all those kind of things, so you can address it. And if there's a bunch of different models, you have to learn all those different models. Is that kind of... Sort of true. Yeah, yeah, I did through time. Uh, you, you know, most of learning the different models was through being, a, you know, a foreman and a general foreman and manager. But you know, as a welder, um, a lot of it was, um, you know, repairing uh, accidents and wrecks. So mm-hmm. they would come in smashed, and we would straighten them back out. So um, a lot of it was just cutting out, you know, messed up metal and putting in fresh metal. It's kind of like a body shop. Yeah. You know, at a an auto body shop. Yeah. So you kind of, you mentioned there, and we'll jump a little bit, but so you saw them when they came in wrecked in, you know, it came in all wrecked. Did that kind of spark an interest for you? Like, how did this train get all wrecked up? Like, what were, what was going on here? Is that, was that of interest to you or were you just focused on cutting out the bad part, putting the new stuff back You know in? what? I just, I actually just liked welding. Oh. Um, you know, the, the inspiration. I was trying to make a very large, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I saw these wrecked ones come in and then he ends up at the agency. Yeah. You know, I was inspired later to do what I'm doing now, but, um. Yeah, I just, I enjoyed welding, just always wanted to be a good welder, but, you know, thought that through time, you know, breathing all the smoke and the atmosphere probably wouldn't be a good thing to do for 30 or 40 years, yeah. so I decided to try to move on uh, in the same field. Do you yeah. still kind of weld on the side? Like, uh, I can repair my own things, Yeah, but, uh, you know, for the average welder, I'm probably pretty bad right now. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, but see, I, 
I don't weld. I don't think anyone else in the room welds. I would love to learn how. So maybe next time you come to come back to headquarters, we can, you know, work with the training academy and set up a little welding course for some of us. Oh sure, we can melt some metal. It's it's all good. I think that I think we could get a lot of people in on that. James is actually he won't talk, but he just gave a thumbs up. <laughs> so I think he'd be in on that too. So sure. I'll make my note myself a note on that. Yeah, Sorry for that. those of you not at headquarters, but we'll try to learn how to weld here. <laughs> <laughs> So you did, um, you know, you did Union Pacific for, for those years, and then you went to the FRA. You know, what got you interested in, in leaving, uh, you know, the private sector and then jumping over to federal? Um, well, actually, you know, as my time as a foreman, former general manager with Union Pacific, I got into uh, looking at event recorders and trying to piecemeal together how certain little incidents would occur. Um, and it was interesting for me. And... Um, the FRA offered, you know, uh, um, some portion of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I already had four years with the military, so it gave me, I, already, I was four years up already when I went to the government. It yeah. all counts, you know, for retirement and so on. So well, I'm very well aware. I am the baby in my division. I, have, <laughs> I had no prior before coming here, and I'm aware. So, yeah, I mean, just looking at event recorders was kind of intriguing to me, and being able to use the software to figure out, you know, how far the train had traveled, how fast it was going, what kind of braking, what kind of uh, throttle position they were in. Um, it was intriguing, and uh, that interested me quite a bit. That's really cool. So you went to FRA, and so um, what did you do there? So with the FRA, I was what they call an MP&E inspector, motive power and equipment. So strictly, I had to learn um, freight cars and mm-hmm. passenger cars, which – uh, before that I didn't know about. So, so that was new for me, but basically anything that rolls on the rail, I had to understand and learn, um, and apply the federal regulations, safety regulations too. So you had to, you had to understand the regulations and then understand the actual structures of all the things that you were looking at. So, I, uh, you know, was there something that you, in, was interesting for you or did the FRA kind of say, we need someone in this area. Can you please, you know, pick up this information and become our expert in this area or did you kind of drive yourself to being interested in a certain piece or yeah the fra has different disciplines they have motive power and equipment they have signal track uh, operating and hazmat okay and so my background was locomotives um it's hard to find somebody that has locomotive and a car background mm-hmm. so most of the guys that go to the fra as an mp inspector either have a locomotive or a car background they have to learn the other side of things okay so um so yeah, that's the five disciplines. So I was already kind of, you know, you stuck in that, that group. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. So what, and I kind of skipped it a little earlier, but what got you interested so much in trains? Because you have you have train videos on your phone, and when your phone rings, if I remember correctly, it was a train whistle. So you are you are a train guy. Yeah, yeah, I like trains. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that either. Um, you know, it all started back from the welding, and just I was looking for a job to get out of the military. Yeah. You got out of the Navy, and Union Pacific hired me. And that's, that's just... I was actually looking at trucking companies too, and you know there were some trucking companies there at the job fair. I remember they were, but they were looking for drivers, and I told them that I wanted to be in their repair shop. I wanted to like repair their trailers. Yeah. I, I was a welder, so, um, but they were hiring drivers. So I ended up with the railroad, and that's kind of how it all started. And then you just ended up. Loving the trains. Yeah, yeah, unintentionally, but yeah. Yeah, I have a I have an uncle like that. He was a uh, worked on a certain plane and got just he he's separated from the Air Force for years now, and he just still he tracks some of these planes, takes pictures of them. Like he became oh, a right. plane guy. Like really, he, he was really into it. 
So I can picture you now. You're, you know, you, I asked, uh, for those that don't know, I asked Joey to send me just a little bio, and he put on here that he's going to be at the NTSB for, till uh, 2029. He's already got it planned out. So I figured, you know, in, in 2030, you're going to start in your scrapbook collection, and you'll start putting trains in there. Yeah, I might. I might. In the real industry, we call those guys foamers. Foamers? Yeah, because when they see trains, they kind of foam at the mouth. So <laughs> we call them foamers. So the the airplane thing, yeah. I'm not sure if they, they do that in the airfield, but yeah. Oh, I'm I'm fairly certain they probably do. The foamers. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, it's all cool stuff. So there's going to be someone that's going to follow it around to do all that. So I get it. Yeah. Um. So you FRA, did you move around the country with your inspection duties and and do all that, or were you still based in um in California? Yeah, I was still based in Southern California and and covered. You know, I covered, uh, Southern California. I would occasionally go up to Northern California, Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. So, so what would be like a typical day? Like, you know, what kind of stuff would, would you inspect? Would you just let them know that you're coming to check stuff out? Or would you have a schedule and you kind of have a routine? No, you know, for what we did, there was no schedule. We actually like show up and say, we're going to inspect that train. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, of course, we would try to, you know, not mess up their plans for the day yeah. and still do our job. But um, occasionally it didn't work out so good. But so it probably meant that you had to work pretty hard to get good relationships with, with the, you know, agencies and individuals as well, you know, so you kind of build all that up so that they knew you were doing your job. You're not trying to inconvenience them. Right. All those kind of things. That probably then helped when, um, when you made the jump to the NTSB, like building all those relationships and having all those, what, what led you to make the jump to the agency? Well, actually, um, there was a, uh, an accident in Southern California at Chatsworth. Oh, okay. Um, when I was with the FRA, and this that was my fir- first exposure uh, working with the NTSB. And Dave Watson was actually the investigator for the NTSB that I worked with. I was on his in his group. Okay. And just watching him work, the things that he did um, and accomplished, it inspired me. And I actually told him that before he retired that, you know, I told him that I felt like a, a little kid watching a fireman <laughs> and wanting to grow up to be a fireman, you know. So that was kind of our little inside joke. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So... So you were part of his group. And for those that don't know, the NTSB, when we do an investigation, it's a party system. So there's different different NTSB staff are set up as chairman of each individual kind of group. And so you were part of his group, I'm assuming, on, you know, um, uh, track type of stuff. It was a mechanical group. Mechanical he, group. Yeah, he was, he does, he did what I'm doing now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's really cool. And so uh, when it all got done, you know, did you reach out to him to find out, hey, I'm, this is a great experience. I'd like to, you know, see what to do. Or did you just kind of on your own keep an eye on things? No, I actually, you know, uh, spoke with him when I was applying for the position. And uh, after I got hired, he actually was here for, I think, maybe about two or three months. So we had time to, you know, trade some, uh, some secrets and, yeah. you know, so on and uh, kind of do a little turnover before he left. So I got to work with him a little bit, never on an investigation, but mm-hmm. actually, you know, um, Converse with him. Yeah, he showed me some trade secrets and That's you know awesome. how to handle the job. And yeah, it was good. That's really cool. So you know, you your first introduction was you know at an accident. You know, as a member of the party, how does that? How's your view of it all changed now that you're on the other side? You're running it. You know, did you learn some lessons from being a party member and then how to apply it when you're actually leading an investigation? Yeah, I think he was a good example. And I, and I think that, you know, being on both sides of things helps. It's kind of like, um, 
you know, as you know, when I was a, a, a boilermaker for the railroad and then became a supervisor, I always thought if I went back to be that boilermaker again, I might do things differently because mm-hmm. now I know the other side of it because now I'm a supervisor. So I know, um, you know, what my supervisor would expect out of me. Yeah. So it's, it's good to be on both sides of things, I think. Um, how many, you know, you've been here for what, like five years? A little over three, actually. Three? Oh, yeah. I can't do math. That's so right. uh, over three years, um, you know, have you, has there been an investigation that really kind of sticks with you that you've been on that you either learned a lot of lessons or that really got you thinking about things differently since you've been here? Um, since I've been here, I mean, the, the Chats, Chatsworth incident mm-hmm. when I was with the FRA is, is always going to stick in my head. Yeah. Um, but since I've been here, um, there was an accident in um, Heimdall, uh, South Dakota, mm-hmm. and um, it was actually a mechanical failure. Oh. So I spent a lot of time on that, uh, working with uh, Dick Hipskin, who was the IAC when we wrapped things up. And um, that's probably the one that I've spent the most time on that will probably stick with me for a yeah. while. Yeah. I remember right, it was very cold on that one too. It was. Yeah. There's it's, talking to different folks. They're like, I, I don't remember exactly what the, you know, what the cause of the accident was or what may have happened there right now. But I remember it was cold. I, I remember someone saying they couldn't touch some of the metal because their hands would freeze. So they had gloves right. on to do all those kind of things. It seems like some of these train crashes happen in, in places where it's very cold. I think it's it's common for metal to be more brittle in the colder climates. Huh. So I mean, wheels and rails have more tendency to. You're hitting us with a little science. <laughs> this, is, this is this is a little early in the morning for some science <laughs> yeah. here. Um, but uh, actually, talking about the science, so I first met you at a, um, an accident investigation that had some hazmat involved with it. But mm-hmm. um, so I was I was doing an observation and just seeing how kind of the process went, and I was fascinated by, you know, it was how widespread the investigation went. So you had folks, you know, two miles up on, a, uh, you know, on the tracks looking at stuff. They had people down track to make sure things were okay down there. And if I remember right, you were the, you were the IAC on this one. Yes. And so how was that managing everyone spread out all over places? You had then people going to a different town because some of the cars were taken to another town. I don't think we've uh, released anything on this accident yet, but I mean, so it's still going on, but like you had people spread out all over the place. How was that trying to track everybody down? You know, normally that's not too bad, but for this location, for Hindman, there was no cell reception. So trying to <laughs> communicate with, you know, our coworkers was was terrible. Yeah. So it was tough on that one. But normally, I mean, with RPH, we're all qualified as IACs. Okay. So we serve both roles and we take turns based on workload and so on. Um so even the guys that are working for me, or if I'm group chairman and I'm working for the IAC, we understand each other's roles and, you know, do our best. Everybody's uh, very, uh, you know, um, dependable mm-hmm. because they recognize both roles. Yeah. And um, so there, there's not a lot of supervision that needs to be conducted. Yeah. But it's more of coordination, you know, making sure people know what they need to know at the right times. Yeah. But that particular investigation was hard because of the communications because everyone was all over the we place. depend on our cell phones so bad that uh you know that made it really hard to communicate with each other there's no radio so yeah we had to wait till night till we got back to our hotel so we could actually communicate on what happened and what was being done yeah that was i mean i thought that was very interesting that there was a it was a greater download of information at night and more planning in the morning on to just make sure where everybody was. Right. And you'd run into someone like, Oh, I thought you were, oh, we got done early, so we came down to do this or whatever. So 
That was interesting. Uh, Stephanie didn't want to get on the microphone, but she has a question. Is that unique to RPH? Do you know if that's unique to the uh, Rail Pipeline Hazardous Materials Division, or is that something With that... With everyone being IIC qualified, because I, I, I don't feel like that, that every modal office here has their investigators. Yeah, I believe that's unique to RPH. I believe I've worked with Highway a couple times and they have designated IACs and designated investigators and I believe aviation works similarly with, you know, designated IACs and investigators yeah. separately. Do you think that's just because you guys are, you know, kind of a smaller smaller set of investigators so it just depends on who's available, like you said workload type of stuff, is it just more relevant for you guys to be able to operate that way? Yeah, I don't know the official reasoning behind it, but uh, from what I understand, yeah, we're a small group and, um, um, you know, to help spread the workload yeah. uh, that we all work to qualify and be investigators in charge. Um, your background is mechanical. Have you been able to pick up some of the other stuff? And if so, you know, what area, if you were to be able to be like a dual expert, you know, what would you like to go on besides mechanical? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I know a little bit about everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I know a little bit about track, the operating procedures, uh, hazmat uh, signals, a lot of, you know, electricity and understanding circuits. Um, I know a little bit about all of that, but if I need an official uh, opinion, or, you know, yeah. analysis, I'm definitely going to go to one of my teammates. For it's one of those things where I can probably answer this question, but if I have to go, like, before Congress or someone else, I should uh, probably ask someone else for this answer. Right. Yeah. But a lot of times on the smaller investigations, they may only send two or three of us, mm -hmm. so we have to serve, a, you know, in a dual role into different disciplines, so to speak. To get all those different pieces together right. and, and do all that. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I noticed at the accident, there was a lot of technology being used to kind of, like, you know, measure measure rail, all those kind of things. Between your time at FRA and up through now, have you seen uh, an expansion in technology to help out with some of the investigations or to track some of this? And more technology maybe on the on the um, engines themselves and then on the trains themselves that have helped out? Yeah, I mean, all those are correct. I mean, there's so much technology that's still being created. And, um, you know, the, the biggest thing that I can see would be what the railroads are doing with their uh, track, like wayside detectors. So mm -hmm. basically, um, you know, a train will go by or drive over this detector and it can detect all kinds of defects within the locomotive or car. And that technology is advancing, advancing like really quickly. And it's, it's, it's kind of phenomenal. Do you think a lot of that advancement is driven by the, the need to have positive train control? Like, cause that, in, that requires a, some upgrades up for, or, a lot of upgrades from all the lines, really, and they had to do some wayside stuff. Do you think that's part of it? You know, the, this technology we're talking about is really not related to oh, it's not oh. PTC, but uh, PTC is definitely one of the other technologies that is advancing and, um, yeah, you know, taking over the railroads, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, you say that, and, and getting the technology, we're also getting more data recorders, I think, onto trains. But they're not. Some of them aren't crash worthy, if I remember correctly. They just, they're just. Some of them are just data recorders. They're not, you know, necessarily made to survive some a crash or a long if it burns for a while or something like that. Right. So um, right now, the Federal Railroad Administration requires new locomotives to be built at the current um, regulation, which requires them to be, you know, crash hardened. Okay. Um, some of the older ones are not, but. Um, any railroad now that is regulated by the Federal Railroad Administration has to have a crash-hardened okay. memory module for their locomotives. But there's a lot of railroad out there still that is not regulated by the FRA. So. Yeah. 
Um, how old does a train, how old can it be? I mean, you said, you know, the newer ones built now. What's the, what's the lifespan sometimes of an engine? Oh, it depends on the railroad. I mean, there's yeah. some like tourist excursion railroads out there that, like I said, still have steam locomotives. And some of those steam locomotives actually have event recorders on them. Oh, really? Yeah. Because they run <laughs> on, uh, you know, other class one railroads tracks. Yeah. So they, the yeah, railroad says, it. if you're going to run on our railroad, you're going to have to, you know, supply your locomotive with these things. And sometimes they're event recorders. Um, but there's uh, smaller diesel locomotives from the 30s, 40s, and 50s that are still running out there. Wow. Um, the class ones are not using them, but, yeah. uh, some of the smaller railroads, maybe the class threes or the, like I said, the tourist excursion railroads, yeah. but they're still out there. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit what the difference in the classes we've said, class one, two, three, like, uh, I, I know class one is like, when you think of freight, you know, um, in our area, if you, you know, ride the Metro or whatever, you see the Tropicana, uh, orange juice train that goes from Florida, I think like up to New Jersey or whatever, that always used to be my sign. If I was running late for the Metro, if I saw the saw the orange juice train go by i realized i was late so right. that's like a class one like you know what you think of a train so class one is your you know your 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 larger railroads and i'd have to actually look at the regulation to give you the exact definition <laughs> but a class one would be like your major you know union pacific uh, norfolk southern yeah. type railroads class threes are smaller i think I'm not sure if the regulation, um, you know, defines them by miles of track okay. or a number of employees. I think you, but, I think it might be miles of track. Yeah. Um, so, and then the tourist excursion are more of like, you know, you can go out and buy a, buy a locomotive and build some tracks and haul people up and down the coast or something if you wanted you know, to. No, that's always been a side project I've been <laughs> trying to do. I can't really get my family on board. But yeah. now that I know that you're certified in steam engines, this might be a project. And you're going to teach me how to weld on it. So Sure. I can show you how to drive them too. <laughs> so did you get to drive a steam engine? Uh, you know, I can operate them. I never yeah. actually drove one. Yeah. yeah. You didn't get yeah. to stick your head out the window and, and toot it? I did do that actually. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's just something about that as a kid. Like, you know, always wanted to just be able to pull down on that cord and just make a steam engine like blow its whistle forever. That's right. That's steam coming out of there too, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Well, that, so what did I, I would ask a stupid question? Like, if you, you know, someone held on it to it too long, would you deplete the steam so much that then the engine wouldn't work? It would take a while, but yeah, it's possible. <laughs> Theoretically, they, they might go deaf before that happens. <laughs> Yes, Leah. <laughs> is that why they toot the horn to release the steam? Like, do they have to do it? No, they actually. There's there's relief valves that are on top of the boiler, so when it reaches a certain pressure, um, it, it'll relieve itself basically, so it doesn't blow up. Okay, but does that make it toot? Uh, no. Okay. It, it, it's a you know it's, it's a, a puff of steam puff coming of steam. out, and it yeah. almost sounds like you know air releasing out of a okay. canister or something. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, blowing the whistle will actually relieve some of the steam pressure, but that's not what it's designed for. That wasn't his main feature in life, wasn't for that. No, it's to make people get out of the way. Well, that's like, that's a good safety yeah. feature as well. Yeah. You know, it's got it built in so it doesn't blow up. And then, so, and I'm stuck on steam engines for the moment, but when you sure. inspected them and looked at them, mm -hmm. were some of them like original welds, like you saw what someone had built way back in the day and that it's still working and it's just been maintained well or some of them or most of them rebuilt uh, a lot of the you know the different apparatus on the locomotive was original yeah um, the only thing that would be different would be the boiler which was the most sa safety sensitive portion of it because yeah. we don't want to blow people up so um 
you know, they have tubes that go through them that have to be welded in um, every 15 years. So okay. all those would be all those are new, newer. Yeah. Because I just think about how old rail is in America. And, you know, some of these tracks that they're running on were, you know, iron that was made in the early 1900s and might have been laid in, you know, 1910, 1915. Like some of this rail is really old, but it's still still part of our infrastructure, still for the most part working well. Yeah, there's still some areas out there that have some very old track. I mean, uh, yeah, there's actually dates on the side of the rail where you can actually read the date that it was built. Sometimes they put what they call date spikes. It's a little railroad spike that has the last two digits of the year that they put into the one of the ties so they know when the track was laid so they know how old it is and some people collect those actually so so then if they collect them it's probably not good for you if something were to happen you're looking for the date spike and someone is coming and taking it out Uh, possibly yeah yeah (laughs) um uh, you also gave me good advice uh, that i didn't realize if you ever see a rail that isn't shiny on top it means that a train hasn't come through for probably like a day I didn't realize that that the the rails would rust so quickly. Yeah, it depends on the atmosphere, you know, in the more humid um, areas that, uh, you know, it's just raw metal. It's uncoated. Um, I mean, some of some areas have a little oil or so on or or something, but uh, uh, most of it's just like raw metal with no coating on it. So it rusts very quickly if it's in a humid area or if you get a little sprinkle. Yeah. I mean, within a few hours, it's turning orange already. So I had had no idea that was new, new to me because. it was you or someone else that was like, yeah, when I see all those high school prom pictures, I look at the track to see if it's shiny on top or if it's rusted. Yeah, it's unfortunate. A lot of people think it's cool to take their pictures, you know, between the tracks or next to the tracks, not knowing whether, you know, they're actually active or not. Or they say, oh, I've never seen a train come through here, yeah. you know. But, uh, but, yeah, sometimes, you know, and we've had some investigations that was regarding that. So, Well, and um, you worked on a report on trespassers, I think, for the agency, right? I did. That was a that was just a it was a, two years ago. It was yeah. I, yeah, I just looked it ago. up. I can't remember what it was. Can you maybe yeah, give a little synopsis of the report? Uh, it was it was regarding um, uh, you know um, accidents that occur, um, people trespassing on railroad property, um, getting themselves um, either injured or killed. Yeah. And uh, we interviewed you know some different railroads and their security and police uh, police forces for the railroads. And um, it was a public forum just to, you know, kind of advertise the okay. safety of trespassing on railroad property and how dangerous it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll make sure there's a link to that because I read part of it and it was pretty interesting. I mean, I knew it kind of went on, but I didn't know. I mean, I didn't realize like each each uh, like class one or whatever has some of their own security own police forces for a lot of stuff. So they have to interact with the locals and then you've got, you know, uh, I think there's actually even FRA police that sometimes get involved in stuff or some sort of federal police for some of these rail lines too. It was, it seems like there could be a lot of people involved. Yeah. Most railroads have their own police force and yeah, they have arrest, um, you know, authority and they're basically there. I, I, on the freight rails, they're there to protect the freight, from yeah. what I understand, you know, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, stealing and theft. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a lot of the passenger roads, I think it's both. They're trying to keep the passengers safe, uh, their employees safe that are driving the trains. Yeah. So. And again, it just goes back to, it's so old in the, in the United States, and there's so many miles of, of rail around here. Um, when we were talking with Mike Hamilton, he used to work for the American Orient Express and, you know, traveled 
all the way across the country. And I just, you know, when I was thinking about it afterwards, like that's how people used to get around. Like I was, I was like, oh, this is really cool. But like that just used to be what people would do. You just would hop on a train and, and just travel across the country. So it's right. just a, it's a big part of, you know, a lot of towns. I mean, I grew up in, in rural Montana, but a lot of the towns are there because that's either where the grain silo was that everyone brought everything to, or that's where they could get access to the river so they could refill the steam or refill the, the boiler so they could make the steam to run. And so like some of these towns just popped up because of that. And then you have other places like the Greenbrier in West Virginia, which was a railroad property because that's where they had to stop and change engines or do something there. So like, oh, people might be here for a while. Let's build a hotel and let's build a really fancy hotel and put it here. Right. And crews would change, you know, crews would only go so far. They would swap out and, yeah. you know, yeah. So. So a lot of these towns across the, especially out West are, can probably trace their origins back to, to railroads. Yeah, that's correct. So cool. Well, awesome. Any other questions from anybody? No, I, I love learning about it. Like, I don't know some of this stuff, and, and you've done some really cool stuff with trains, and, and I think we're all pretty lucky to have you on our end of it so that, you know, you can take it if something, you know, an accident occurs, you can help take that experience to make sure that it, that it doesn't happen again. And so um, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and uh, share your insights and getting, you know, all of your information to us. Um, you know, listeners, if you want to have any questions, be sure to hit us up on all of our social medias, visit us on the website. And uh, thank you very much for coming behind the scene with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Appreciate it.